0: Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. Thank you for joining us for this special episode of All Shall Be Well. Each semester, Women in the Academy and Professions hosts an online book club with content related to discipleship in our vocational lives. And this semester was spent discussing the book Scars Across Humanity by Elaine Storkey. We are delighted to share with you the finale of this spring semester's book club, an interview with Elaine Storkey hosted by Women in the Academy and Professions Jasmine Obey Saker. Before we begin, please be aware that the interview includes details related to violence against women, including sexual assault and intimate partner violence, and may be triggering to some listeners. Please take care of yourself as you listen. Thank you again for joining us. We hope you'll find the interview as meaningful as we did.
1: Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Welcome to the finale of the book club, where we have been discussing Elaine's Scars Across Humanity organized by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, and I'm your host, Jasmine. And we're very privileged to have Dr. Elaine talking with us today to discuss a book to answer questions on is- issues associated with gender and violence experienced by women. As you might be aware, Scars Across Humanity was awarded the 2019 Book of the Year on Politics and Public Life by Christianity Today. So, I'll speak just a little bit about Dr. Elaine Starkey, so that before we start, she has a very fascinating resume, and I can't get to half of it. She's a sociologist, she's a philosopher, she's a theologian, and has held multiple university positions. She succeeded John Stott as the executive director of the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. She also served as president of the UK Aid and Development Agency, Tier Fund, for 17 years. And I believe a significant portion of the issues she addresses in her book, the material she discovered as she traveled globally for her work. Uh, She has an impressive uh, array of achievements in different areas, and you'll be fascinated if you check out her website and also if you check out the media page for her. I will just mention that she has years of experience working in different capacities in the media and uh, she was honored as a recipient of the 2016 Kiker Prize from Princeton Theological Seminary for Excellence in Reformed Theology and Public Life. So we're very privileged that you are with us. Thank you for accepting our invitation.
2: It's a privilege for me to be here and it's very kind of you to arrange this. I, I appreciate that my interest in uh, violence against women really comes from um, well two sources really the first is my concern about justice in general and knowing and being a christian and really soaked in the scriptures just recognize that you can't read the scriptures properly without recognizing god's heart for justice and the way in which he calls us all to live just lives not just personally but actually relationally and in terms of Um, the structures and the societies and the cultures that we construct. So that's really a big biblical pattern. And so violence against women really comes right in the middle of the whole issue of justice. How how should we live together? In fact, it's massive because it really concerns half of humankind and we can't get away from it. But on a concrete level, how I first encountered it was many years ago when um, an editor of a woman's magazine in the United Kingdom, phoned me up and said she'd just put out this questionnaire about domestic violence. And it wasn't a scientific survey, but she was absolutely amazed at the response she got. And would I mind looking through the the questionnaires and responses and writing a report? And like an idiot, I said, oh, yes, that would be fine. Just bung it in the post. These were the days before everything went by email. When it came in the post, I thought I hadn't got time to read it during the day. I just opened the envelope before I went to bed and have a quick read and then deal with it in the morning. Well, the quick read never happened. In fact, I read it for hours and I felt so dismayed with what I read. I mean, I was a youngish woman at this stage, just a, a raw sociologist. Horrible, horrible stories about domestic violence from people, mostly anonymous, but this was their one chance to actually get off their heart, some of the things that they were living with day in and day out, and it was horrendous. And I suppose that was my first encounter. It was difficult to write the report. A lot of these were Christian women in Christian households, not the majority, but some of them. So my heart really went out to them. And then later on, much, much, many years later, I became a member of something called Safety Net, which was a group of looking after survivors of incest, adult survivors, women who still remembered what it was like to be abused as children and had never worked through it and got out the other end. So those were my two backgrounds, really. And when I became president of Tearfund, I knew I would come across domestic violence, I knew I would come across rape, but I really was not prepared for what I did come across in my travels abroad and in, in our own country, just the layers and layers of it. And it took about four visits to different countries to realize I was seeing the same phenomenon just in a different cultural form. But wherever I went, there was yet another manifestation of violence against women. And I started asking myself a series of questions like, if you take this mythical concept of a global woman, where in her life cycle does violence occur? Where is it most likely to occur? And the horrible shocking news came to me that actually, all the way through, starting with selective abortion and infanticide, um, abortion in the womb in India and in, Ch- in China and so on, because girls weren't pre- preferred, because everybody wanted sons rather than daughters, for a whole range of cultural reasons. And then the, the horrible incidence of female genital mutilation, which isn't just happening in 28 countries, although it's predominantly there, but it's now spread across the world as people migrate from society to society and it's here in the UK and it's split right open in the UK because we have this woman called Hyba Hi- Wadery, who is actually herself a, a survivor of FGM, and has now come out and written a book called Cut and has really raised the temperature about this. So then there was FGM. Then I found child brides was a massive global issue. Little girls being married off often to very much older men without any consent at all, and suffering layers and layers of violence. And then there was honour killings, and then there was domestic violence or intimate partner violence. And then there was prostitution and trafficking. And I learned to put the two together, although I've had a lot of stick from career prostitutes who say, It's our choice. We choose to be prostitutes. It's a career. And I say, okay, if it's a career for you, I'm not going to argue with you. But I don't really believe you. (laughs) I don't believe that you've weighed up all the options. Now, shall I go into human resources or nursing or secretarial work or teaching or um, business acumen? Um, Or shall I go into prostitution? No, I think I'll be a prostitute you. It doesn't happen like that. It actually happens usually through neglect, through abuse, through a background, through drugs, habituation, and all those kinds of things. And when they get very offended and say, I'm insulting them, we just shake hands and I say, okay, let's just agree that you you have chosen this way of life, even though I don't believe you. But just listen to what I'm saying. I'm saying for every 10 of you, there are 10,000 women in prostitution who have not chosen this way of life and would love to get out of it and prostitution and trafficking in my boat are very much very very similar and you have similar manifestations that women endure and then of course there's rape and um being a member of rape crisis centers and helping people helping women to come to terms with rape, it is a horrible thing that stays with women for many, many years, and then rape as a weapon of war. And this is what made me start to write the book. It was actually a visit to the Congo. It was going, traveling down the North and South Kivu provinces, and and when there was a war on, there was a civil war still going on, and in every center I stopped in, I saw yet more violence against women, women being raped as a weapon of war. And I mean, it's just so much cheaper than bullets. It humiliates the opposition. It means that you can give the next generation, is your progeny not their progeny, and eventually actually exterminates um, the the people that you're trying to annihilate. And it's horrendous. And just seeing the level of uh, of victimization made me think, well, I've got to do something about this. I can't just watch and listen. I've actually got to do something. And there were a few things I could do. I could come home and talk to parliamentarians and send them over to the Congo, which we did. And we sent a group of cross-party MPs, members of parliament, to see for themselves and then to say, what should Britain be doing about this? But I could also start to write and start communicating this to the Christian audience, but also to many other audiences out there who are bothered about these things. And that's how the book started. (laughs) And all the way through, One incident in the Congo stayed with me, and in a a certain sense, it provided the shape of the book. Because I was looking around a a hospital, a Christian hospital in Goma, in the North Kivu province, and it was a very professional outfit. And this beautiful uh, Congolese woman doctor was showing me around very professionally for all that they were doing for rape victims and so on. We were seeing the handicrafts, we were looking at the counselling room, we were looking at people who'd come on and actually had surgery and were recovering. And she, every now and again, she'd look over my shoulder at the door, um, and I thought, she is keeping a reg- and her eyes open for people being brought in. And then suddenly, she looked over my shoulder and gave what I can only describe as a wail. It was horrendous. And she ran out of the room. And I didn't know what to do. And the nurse who was with me didn't speak English, um, but we'd been speaking French. And she said, I, th- I think we must follow her. I think there must be an emergency. So we hunted after this doctor and we couldn't find her. And then we, this nurse showed me where she was likely to be and opened the door. And there was the doctor with a girl, a 17, 16, 17-year-old girl, wrapped up. So she had a, her arms around the girl and they were both rocking like this, rocking and the girl was saying, pourquoi, 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 pourquoi? And it was a horrible kind of rhythmic sound as this doctor, both of them crying and crying and this girl with matting in her hair and blood all over her, shouting, why, 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 why has this happened to me? Um, I mean, the nurse then said, we closed the door and we went away and we just sat there stunned. I mean, they see this every day, several times a day. But what was special about this was that this young woman was the worship leader in this doctor's church. And she had just been coming home from a choir practice and had been gang raped by this bunch of men. And that incident and that question, why, was one that, for me, resonates right through the book. The book is about why. Why is there violence against women? And so the last few chapters is really trying to answer that. Not just in terms of biology, because you've got all of the biological reductionists, and I try to be fair to them, but I don't think they've got a proper answer at all. And then the social scientists, and I'm a social scientist. And then people just blaming religion because of our ideology and our patriarchy. But in the end, my answer was, you really, you cannot understand violence against women unless you have a robust theology of sin unless you understand what sin is, and human propensity to sin, and the the whole way in which sin can grab us and change and, and alter our cultures and so on. Unless you understand that, you won't understand violence against women and you will never be able to change it. And so that's really my message that Christians need to get out there and talk about this as a manifestation of sin, one of the most ugly and brutal manifestations of sin. But of course, sin is a very optimistic concept because it never has the last word. In Christian theology, there is always the possibility of healing and redemption and forgiveness and a new start. First of all, for the women who've gone through this, but even for the perpetrators, if they can come face to face with their own sin, rather than living in denial, which most of them do, and then go back to God and ask for forgiveness, God can forgive and heal, and even they can have a new start. So that's what the book was about, really.
1: Thank you, Elaine. You pretty much told us how you started and your own journey about how you started thinking about gender and violence and the different things that led you deeper into conviction about why you wanted to write this. So I'm just going to read off some of these questions to you. And we'll start with the fact that you mentioned in your book in the introduction that globally Acts of violence towards women and girls between the ages of 15 to 44 cause more deaths, disability and mutilation than cancer, malaria and traffic accidents combined. And this is very sobering. Can you tell us how ideas of ownership and control over over the lives of women and girls make it culturally acceptable for women to undergo violence and what can be done to change such ideas?
2: Yes. I mean, you can I mean, the most obvious um, example is FGM, female genital mutilation. And so that, that process is, is barbaric. I mean there are four, four different types, but the, the worst type, the pharaonic or the Sudanese type, most of the girls' um, genitalia are cut away. Uh, clitoris is cut into and are cut away, but the labia, and, and right inside the vagina is cut, and then the girl is stitched up and the stitching stays there. And in some cultures, Somalia for example, the bridegroom's family have the right to inspect the girl's body to make sure she has not been tampered with before she can marry their son. Now what's all that about? I mean, what on earth is it about? It's actually about the the male ownership of the female body. It's about the fact that that girl's body belongs to the man whom she's going to marry. And therefore, to preserve her purity, she has to be stitched up so it's not possible for her to have sex with anybody except the man. Of course, he can have sex if he can find a woman who hasn't been stitched up and so on. Uh, There's no embargo on him, but for, for her, she has to be so pure. The second thing about FGM is that women should not enjoy sexual pleasure. And so you make sure that she doesn't enjoy sexual pleasure by cutting away clitoris, but also by going through this barbaric process. Uh, So then, of course, she is opened up by her bridegroom on the wedding night. And I have talked to bridegrooms who are opening up their bride on their wedding night, and do they enjoy it? Frankly, no, because the girl is, I mean, historical very often. It's built into this wonderful wedding, this wonderful time when you're going to be moving into full adulthood and you're going to be bonding with your husband, and actually it's tremendously painful. For most of the women who've talked to me, it's agony and being cut and the man then seeing all this blood and all the rest of it. It's not a great way to start sex and married life. So the barbarity of it, um, it is, it's part of the patriarchal tradition to say the man owns the women's body, woman's body, and therefore she has to be preserved in such a way that nobody else has tampered with it. Now that, you know, it's a million miles from a Christian understanding of male and female and the way in which we actually, we we are mutual and reciprocal in our relations with each other. But the same kind of ownership, the same kind of male dominance is there in all those patterns of violence in intimate partner violence. The the very idea that a man can beat his wife if she's not obeying him can be built into all kinds of systems of thought. So somehow he assumes it's his right to get his way in a relationship. And then if that involves punishing her, for misdemeanors in his eyes, well, that's right as well. And so that's propped up. In many, many cultures, it's propped up. And if a woman goes to the police in some cultures, especially in North Africa, or in the Gulf states, and complains that her husband is violating her, they're more likely than not to send her back and to violate her themselves, because they're entirely on the side of the man and not on the side of the woman. So there's layers of it built into all of these things. And similarly with rape, rapists saying that the woman's body is for me. Women are sexual. If I want sex, I can have sex. And if she objects, well, she'll have to make, make do. She'll have to do the best of it. But somehow it's the sense of ownership, male entitlement, and the women's consent or approval is not na- needed at all in, in any of these areas. And the whole child marriage, of course, the little girl's approval is not uh, needed. And the the things that some of those child brides go through, I mean, I've been reading reports recently, and it is a horrible scourge upon the human race, what we're putting little girls through by not carrying out this embargo on child brides.
1: Yes, it brought up rape in the context of ownership. And then in your book, you actually talk about rape culture. So... I want to ask you something about that. Could you explain what rape culture means and what are the markers of rape culture in contemporary Western society? How do we change that culture? And then, slightly related to that, in the Western world, uh, how can women be safe on college campuses?
2: Yes, really important questions. And the big issue of college campuses is here in the UK as well, and actually right through Europe. And um, I mean, Rape culture is is a culture which says, which reinforces the idea that a man is looking for sex and therefore he will find sex. And a girl has to make it very, very, very clear if she doesn't want sex. In other words, she hasn't to be there. If she is there and the man is there and they're chatting each other up in the bar, well then she should expect the fact that he's likely to want to have sex with her. She should accept that as a matter of course. And that's the kind of mentality that some of these guys have. If she's there in the bar, if she's there in a, in a room and they're talking, well, then it, it will lead to sex because somehow or another, this is the expectation he has. So expectations then are built into mentality about entitlement and the girl just becomes an object rather than a person who has the right to say yes or no or please leave me alone and and then this, this is reinforced in a dozen different ways and one of the horrible things horrible ways it's being reinforced in the UK is through music hall jokes stand-up comics and so on and it's manifestly changed even in the last decade where you'll go to a um, and they're usually male male enclaves but there were sometimes women there too and they will start with not very risky jokes just harmless type jokes and then the, the audience will laugh and by the end they're not. They're not even remotely funny. But they're saying very savage and brutal things about women and about rape, and everybody is laughing, and that's really rape culture writ large. Um, and if somebody counters that and and challenges it and says this isn't funny, um, that person then becomes the focus of the victimisation and will be um, will be addressed in a very brutal way. So. Um, we're really keen to have the law changed in the UK so that this is now not possible, that you can't make these jokes. Um, but of course, that's very difficult to monitor because they will they will continue and go underground and all the rest of it. But it's not okay. Rape culture is never okay. And you can only be um, safe on campuses if everybody agrees that rape culture is not okay. Uh, as long as you have somehow women being blamed for the fact that they're raped because they're not in the right place, they're not wearing the right clothes, they're spoken to the wrong people, you know, they've not made their their case very clear. And women, I was at a meeting where I was talking to a whole group of women, and one new woman, one fresher, we called them, came in and was very, very angry. And um, I said, uh, are you all right? So she said, yes, I've just been to the, the uh, pet talk by the the college counsellor. So somebody said, well, what was wrong with that? She said, well, she just told us where we should be walking, what whether we should be having wh- whistles, we should be blowing whistles, how not to, um, what not to say when we're talking to a guy, um, what not to wear and all the rest of it. And so one of the girls said, okay, yeah, I get the point. And then this girl exploded and said, but nobody's getting the guys together and saying, by the way, don't rape women. It's all us. And so somehow it's our responsibility not to be raped. And I think when you've got that as the fundamental underlying, that somehow men will be like this. Men will be men. Boys will be boys and they'll rape you. So you've got to watch it. It's your responsibility. It's not. And therefore, men have to come on board. And they do come on board. And there are some fantastic guys in the UK fighting. I mean, men against rape is a. Great organization, men against pornography and all the rest of it. But the more we get men standing up with other men and saying that's not funny or that's not even remotely human and that's that's barbaric, uh, then I think customs will change. But not when it's just women against men um, because we're very eas- easily isolated and pushed into a corner.
1: Yeah, I'm glad that you kind of brought the guys in. And I think that strand is there through your book too about Men being involved in advocating for like fair treatment of women and violence do not have violence against women. So, what advice do you give? How men can get involved globally in this, not just you know the UK and the campus thing, and then also how can we help people from within conservative communities, especially? Yeah. So this is like for men in general in the global stage, not just like Western women and college campuses, and also other people within conservative communities who are like-minded but who might not know what to do like uh, how do we effect change by helping others
2: yes i think organizations help so in the uk the man who used to be the international director of tear fund a dear colleague of mine phoned me very late one night having been actually he'd been to pakistan and he just encountered a very, very bad situation in terms of rape, It's also domestic violence. And he felt he wanted to leave Tier Fund and set up a men's organization, looking, it's called Restored, trying to network globally with men across the world on the whole issue of rape and domestic violence. I persuaded him not to leave Tier Fund. I said, look, let's try and get Tier Fund to own this ourselves, at least incubate it for a few years, so that we can provide the office and the, um, the resources, and you can start this off, and we get another international director, which is what we did, and it was—it's—it's it's still a very successful organization. So restored has this incredible wing to it called First Man Standing, and um, Peter, is now retired, and now we've got a new uh, director of restored, and when it's a—it's a co-directorship, so. It's men and women, a, a woman called Mandy Marshall and the man um, together, co-direct Restored. But Peter directed First Man Standing, part of Restored for many years. And he would go to meeting after meeting, um, right across the world, wherever he was, because he's still with Fund, and he would talk to the men in any big audience, any church, and ask them to stand with him as first men standing against the whole issue of rape and against domestic violence and against violence against women. And I think the men were taken aback by this, but actually it has become a global movement. And there are many, many men now on board um, saying, not in our name, we're not not on our watch, um, not in our institution, not in our church, and uh, have been wisened up to the situation. Now it's a tiny, um, globally, it's a tiny organization. It's just a pebble in the sea, but it's a start. And I think the more we get that in churches and I mean, I go around the UK and other men, male colleagues go around the UK to big churches, but also we go abroad. I've just been to Turkey where it's very interesting listening again uh, to the level of rape and violation that's going on there. So men talking to men that this is not okay, I think it just has to happen. In conservative churches, uh, there's layers and layers of of extra issues to be involved. You have to then start asking, well, how how does your own theology contribute to this? Um, Are there things somehow that you're saying theologically that sound as if you're justifying violence against women? And this happened particularly in, in Australia, but it's also happened in many other countries where people have been calling attention to the whole idea of submission and uh, obedience required of the wife. And, and even in some churches uh, the, in Uganda, when I was in Uganda, they had actually seen through this finally, but it had taken them about four years to do it in these particular cluster of churches, that requiring the wife to obey uh, somehow gave them permission to hit her if she didn't obey. But then if you go back and actually what does that passage in the, uh, in the letter to the Ephesian church mean? It doesn't mean obey. <laughs> it means honour, that you honour one another, uh, you're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wife's the husband, and the husband um, loves the wife, and the wife respects the husband. And those two things come together as a mutual whole. And when you eventually get this in conservative churches and realize it's not about submission, it's not about kind of the man being dominant, it is about, it is, it, may, I'm, I'm, it doesn't matter if you have different roles, I'm, I'm not going to fight about that in churches, that's up to them, that's their church. But actually it does not entail and it does not justify in any, any um, remarkable way violence against women. And I think the message does get across. We can all agree that violence is wrong, that harming a woman is wrong, whatever the best of our theology, and we can start from there. And then we've got a lot of things to build on. So it's it's important, and the men have to take a lead. uh, And it's vital that they do take a lead. And that somehow, in the good organizations, we can model partnership, we can model reciprocation, we can model mutuality in the way we operate and I think that's absolutely crucial.
1: Yeah, thanks Elaine. I have a few more questions and you guys, I'm going to ask Elaine just one for now and if you have any questions, now is the time to uh, shoot them on the chat so that I can see them and read it out after the next question. Again, Elaine, uh, going back to the ideas, I guess because uh, actions kind of stem out of ideas would you like to give examples of patriarchal constructs of masculinity and femininity showing how these can have adverse implications in real life
2: yeah i mean the, the the cultural constructs um are very very interesting so for example i mean they differ from culture to culture so in the uk and i think to north america to some extent the patriarchal construct of femininity was that the woman was either the, the queen of the home, you know, the, the precious um, person who was uh, put, put on a pedestal and very much the domestic kind of mother, or she was somehow suspect. And it's taken a lot to break down and in some conservative circles, the idea that the working woman is not um, is not somehow, to be brought down to size because uh, or the, the woman leaders. And there's a lot of issues about women leading. And a lot of men still don't respect that and would like to bring the woman down to size, would like to demote her physically, but also mentally and in every other way because they think she shouldn't be occupying those roles. So I think those patriarchal constructs um, operate everywhere. Let me give you an example, I was in Uganda and um, i I was talking to the women and when i used to be president of tear fund my aim was always to get women on their own and to to hear their stories to share a lot of sisterhood and fellowship and and help encourage one another and build one another up and give them a bigger theological perspective so i was doing this with this group of women but there were men who still wanted to be there and i'd asked most of the men if they would Leave, and most of them did leave, but one or two stayed at the back. and, and actually, I was quite grateful for them because they, they were the men on the side. They weren't going to be uh, difficult at all. So we were. One of the women was a, a woman leader, and she was um, she was bi- trilingual. She was very kind of efficient. She was a counselor in the um, secular uh, civic authority and so on. And she was in every way, a very polished, very fine person. And I was getting on really well with this woman. We were having a great conversation. She was translating things into um, Swahili and so on. And then the elder of the church, the pastor of the church took great objection to this. And so he brought a table, a small square table. He put it in front of me and in front of this woman and then he brought a whole load of papers, put them on the table, and he sat there with his back to the woman facing me. So I could no longer see her. She couldn't translate what I was doing, what I was saying. She was isolated behind this man who was then sitting there, shuffling his papers and smiling, and and I thought, what is going on here? So I said, I'm terribly sorry, I need to have my, con- my friend, I need to be able to see her and contact her. And he shook his head, no, this is fine, he said, and carried on working on these papers. So then I turned around to the men at the back and said, um, I'm sorry, but I need to continue this conversation with my friend, so the elder must move. And they said, oh no, he can't move, he is a pastor, he can't move. So I thought, well, we're in deadlock then, if he can't move, he's not going to let me listen to this woman. He's not going to let her translate what I'm saying. What do we do then? And I said, so what advice do you have for me to the men at the back? And they said, the women move. And I thought that's, Outrageous, but actually, they were right. So, all the women moved, and including myself and including the translator, and we left this man completely isolated with his silly little table and his papers doing his own thing. And we just moved over here and carried on as before. Now, he couldn't come a second time and interrupt us, so we got away with it. But what was interesting was that it was a patriarchal construct that was domineering and dominant. He could not take on board the fact that we had a woman leader there of his own you know, tribe. He could cope with a white woman doing it, coming from the outside, but he couldn't cope with a Ugandan woman who had authority, who had clout, who had power. And I just thought, and I've observed that almost all over the country. Uh, you can tolerate somebody from the outside coming in, but your construct of masculinity and femininity is very, very culturally local but it's also culturally dominant. And you have to learn these things if you're traveling across the world. You have to learn when, when you can violate those constructs and when you have to actually comply with them. So in another country, I sat on the floor with all the women, this was in in part of India, uh, because the women were sitting on the floor, the men were sitting on the seats. The women were outraged. No, no, you mustn't sit down with us. You must sit up there with them. And I said, but no, I'm a woman, I will sit with you. No, no, we don't want you to sit with us. We want you to sit with them, because then you honor us. You lift us up by sitting with them. You Only you have the the right to sit with them. And I got the point, yeah. It wasn't any use to them for me to sit on the floor with them. I had to sit with the men and show that a woman could do this. And then, of course, that gave me permission to invite another woman up to sit next to me um, so that we could talk together about things that were going on, and then another woman, and eventually we had a whole bunch of women up there. So you learn the kind of, but they're all cultural constructs about femininity and masculinity, largely about power about power, about sexuality, about entitlement, about who makes the decisions. And they're very, very powerful. And uh, you violate them at your peril, really.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to read out a couple of questions that I got. And uh, the first is from Kristen. Have you found Christians generally to be open, receptive to this message about violence against women? and especially patriarchals, patriarchy's role in it. Have you found anything to be particularly helpful when talking about this in the church?
2: Yes, I have found it. I have, but that's partly because um, the people who invite me to speak know me and know what, <laughs> know what I believe and what I'm going to say. So I'm largely speaking to people who are already, they might not know the full picture of violence against women, but they're already on side. It's much more, Difficult to move into a church where you've been invited for another reason, and then you raise this as an issue, a side issue, as it were, but something that's on your heart. Then it's harder to get the message across. In my own experience, I've not had any resistance for many churches in the UK, and not many uh, resist. Re- many churches have resisted elsewhere in the world. Um, I, found, I found a very open, receptive um, audience, and it's partly because... Because I've anchored it in issues of justice, biblical issues about male and female, uh, biblical issues that we get in uh, the life of Jesus, the, the respect that Jesus gives to women over and against his culture, he doesn't go with the cultural norms. He, if you like, he violates the cultural norms over and over again when he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, when he's actually talking to the menstrual woman and allows her to touch him and become healed and so on there's layers and layers of it going on in the gospels so i think when we start with those stories and tell them as anti-cultural stories i mean you know the in Jesus' time there were these bruised and bleeding pharisees who were so pure because they'd never seen a woman because you'd never Pharisees were not allowed to look upon a woman unless their own wives. So they had to go around with their eyes shut or their heads lowered and they'd crash into buildings or, or fall down holes and so on and would be lacerated with bruises and uh, scars. And they were known as the bruised and bleeding and that, that meant they were particularly holy men because they hadn't actually seen or encountered or engaged with women. Now, um, when you see Jesus alongside that uh, and the way that he... He, I mean, he, he treats women as women, as human beings. He treats the woman at the well as an intelligent woman. The, the, the conversation he has with that woman is probably one of the most spir- I mean, startling conversations in the whole of the Gospels because he talks about the nature of God, the nature of God being spirit and truth and that we worship God in spirit and truth and the location doesn't matter. I mean, it's extraordinary uh, what is recorded in the Gospels and the way in which Jesus relates to women. So I think starting with that and then asking, is this how we relate to one another in our churches today? And particularly in conservative churches, are you relating to women like Jesus related to women? You ask the men, or have you are you related to women like the Pharisees relate to women? And very often, I mean, they will feel kind of embarrassed because they are relating like the Pharisees. They've already put women in boxes. They've already mounted all of these rules and regulations and so on. And women are being kept down. So I think it's, It's actually sharing the liberation that we get in the New Testament um, and inviting inviting Christians to enter into that liberation because it's good for all of us. It's good for women, it's good for men, because it's it's part of our humanity, it's part of our humanness. And also it's very healing for women outside the church, and this is the other thing, offering it as a missiological hope. Uh, If women come into the church and they have experienced violence, whether it's domestic violence or rape, or incest or anything, and find the church loving, and find the men compassionate and gentle with no hidden agenda, and no kind of um, superiority over the women, then healing can begin. And and it's also missiological when we're trying to explain the gospel to people outside the church, because one of the things that they notice very quickly is the way that we treat, is the gender issue, the way that we treat one another uh, from a gendered point of view. So yeah, I find, it's, um, I find it's very, it's important to do it. And in my experience, um, women and men come alive and really want to go with it. And I haven't found a lot of resistance, uh, but I have found a lot of ignorance um, in, as part of the journey.
1: Uh, the next question is from Sarah. Um, I really appreciate this conversation. I used a work DRC. And now I research IPV. So this is a very personal question. I'd like to hear advice or strategies for not getting burned or overwhelmed by the magnitude and tragedy of VAW. I'd love to know what works for you.
2: Yes. Oh, I mean, I do appreciate that. And... For me, what works for me is I can talk about it such a lot. I can write about it, I can talk about it people people ask me to go and share stuff, and that for me is enormously therapeutic as well as um as well as everything else and it's also honoring the women whose stories I'm telling uh you know I see these women that sometimes I have their photographs I don't show their photographs except with their permission so for me um being being allowed, being able and enabled to share my pain and and the pain of other people who are feeling it much, much greater because all I've done is actually observe and listen. That's for me very helpful. But sometimes when you can't do that, when you're stuck in a situation where, yeah, there's no outlet um, and the pain is um, too big and and actually the people that you're with are in such a terrible state that, and there seems to be an, an almost a no hope situation Then I think you have to share it with other women who are themselves working in those areas. So when I used to go to when I went to Goma, a woman called Lynn Lucy, who was the founder of Heal Africa, this hospital in Goma, with her Congolese husband, he's a surgeon. When I first met Lynn, she never smiled. And she's a very active, she was a missionary. She went to the Congo as a missionary and speaks many languages and was always with, with the women that she was serving and working with them. But she never smiled. She was um, a brilliant person, but unsmiling. And after a while, I realized why. Because day in and day out, people were being brought into that hospital who were violated, who were maimed, who were being landmined, who had had their tongues cut out, their limbs cut off, and raped and raped and raped. And there was nothing to smile about. And I just experienced what she went through day after day after day after day of just experiencing this. And so I wanted to find out from her, how do you cope? You know, how do you, because I could, I'll be going away next two days time. I'm off back to England and then I'll go and see my grandchildren and I'm playing the garden and all kinds of do my plants. But what, but you're still here. And tomorrow when i have gone, you'll still have more people coming in. And she just said, I I cry a lot. I cry a lot. And I plead with God a lot. And I read the Bible a lot. And I latch on to anybody who is being healed. And I tell their story. And she says, "And, and what it does is put me in touch with the pain of Jesus for the brokenness of the world. And I thought, well, and she carried that very well. She died of cancer two years ago very prematurely and broke my heart because we were writing her biography together and I'm finding it so hard to finish that biography. So great gaps in the story. It's women like Lynn who are actually at the coalface. You know, they are there day in and day out. And basically, we just need to pray for those women because there are an awful lot of women in refuges and hospitals, in women's aid centres, in transit camps, Looking after these women and healing them and working as Christians, hope people who just need tremendous amount of encouragement from us. So, for me, I wouldn't maximize the. Um, I've got so many ways of actually letting go. Uh, gardening is a great occupation, um, prayer is very important, but sometimes it just gets too much. And I, I do sympathize with is it Sarah's question. I mean, it's just so important that you do find the space to actually not, not cut, off, cut yourself off from it, because you're never cut off from it. You're always immersed somehow or another. But where you will have a, a different kind of occupation that you can soak yourself into and, and give your mind and your emotions a rest. Your emotions need a rest, particularly. Um, and the pain needs to be put on hold.
1: Thanks, I have two more questions. So Lindsay's question is, How do you invite men to be part of this conversation without them feeling blamed? (laughs) How do you get them to see this as a human problem or a men's problem, not a woman's issue? I have struggled to engage men in this topic because although there are women in their life that they love, they seem to shy away from this subject entirely, let alone jump on board to be part of the solution.
2: Yes, I, I've experienced all that too, um, and it's a big issue. I'll just tell a, a wee story. Um, there's a um, I, I'm careful about names and so on, but there's a big a man who is a very leading Christian, a very emancipated man, very welcoming, great towards women and so on, and he really championed my work. This was we're talking now ten years, twelve years ago. And he, he was—he uh, kept running huge conferences where you'd have thousands and thousands of people at these conferences. And he would always get me to come and speak at these conferences. He would always stand there saying, "And here is our sister Elaine, who is a great prophet, and she—I want you all, all you men, particularly, to listen to what she's saying, and so on." And he would build me up, and I would say, and they would all respond, and so on. Uh, he is married and a delightful woman, close friend of mine, actually. And once at one of these big conferences, I said, um, "Is." your wife uh, around. He said, yeah, she's in the chalet. Um, So I thought, oh, well, when I finish this talk, I'll go and chat to her Um, because she got, at that stage, she got smaller children, well, children under 10. So um, I went back to the chalet, uh, banged on the door. She opened it, flung her arms around me. Oh, fantastic. She said, I was wondering when I was going to get opportunity. Everybody else gets to see you and I don't. So I said, well, I'm here now. So we we went out, came in. We both slung our shoes off. We stretched out on sofas. We had a good laugh. We had a drink and so on. And then this man came back from the meeting that he'd just been to, Open the door, looked at us both there, and then looked terribly shocked. And before he could stop himself, he said, I hope you're not giving my wife um, ideas above her station. I could not believe my ears. What? (laughs) I couldn't believe, and then he he, that, that was a joke, he said. And I thought, no, it was not a joke. And I looked at her and she shook her head. No, it wasn't a joke. And that really was quite an issue for me. And okay, this guy, you know, did all the right things publicly. But privately, his heart was sold somewhere else. He knew that this was right to, to propagate this ministry, but he wasn't that convinced emotionally. And I found that a lot of guys are like that. You know, they actually, they want to do the right thing because they know it's the right thing, but they, at the same time, don't want to get involved, if anything. And certainly don't want it in their own household. <laughs> they don't want their wives to turn out to be like me. <laughs> And that would be a terrible thing so how do you handle that i think my, my normal way of handling it is i've got pictures of huge numbers of pictures of guys who are on side so when i go to one of these conferences or meetings or churches we go through all the things that need to be done and, and way god is calling people and i make sure they see all these pictures of these guys and, and it includes african guys and indian guys and all kinds of things who are really fabulous people and you know just working their socks off against violence against women and praise them and talk about them. And and if I've got something, if they sent me an email, I'll read the emails out and, and encourage them to be praying for these people. So I make sure it's, I'm not talking about men generically. It's not every man is to blame. And many times it's taken the sting out of things. The other thing I also make sure, I look at violence against men, especially domestic violence. Because that's a real issue. Intimate partner violence is two-way. And statistically, it's tiny compared with violence against women in the home. But there are women who violate their husbands horrendously, really horrendously. And therefore, that has to be told as well. And I found that I'm admitting that, saying that there is this phenomenon, and we also need to pay for women perpetrators. Um, and violence is wrong wherever it happens. Happens, then actually that frees the men up too. And I, I, at the end of most meetings, I get a whole troop of men coming. And some of them, uh, sometimes you get a man who is a, a victim of violence, and he will just simply weep on my shoulder, just cry, and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm there. So I think it's recognizing the reality of the situation. Um, and, and then introducing him to other guys, you know, uh, because they can have some affiliation with that and help but it's it's not we're not trying to get men to feel guilty or target them in any way we're just looking at this as a cultural phenomenon which does involve men and involves cultural attitudes and challenging them that if they've got these cultural attitudes well think again and do something about it because they're not going to be helpful for anyone
1: so i want to go back to uh, some of the uh, some of the things that you talked about church people and outside the church because oh. We had uh, lots of ideas about that when we ended up with uh, the last conversation that we had. And even some of us struggle, just as you yourself said, you know, to write about Christianity and gender was really hard for you because it's it we are insiders and either experientially know some of these things or know people who have gone through some of these things. So I'm going to just ask those questions. I know that you have spoken a little bit to both of those questions, but... I'm sure you have more things to say. So in the book, you tell us that the hardest chapter to write was the one about Christianity and gender. You revisit different parts of the Bible and demonstrate that the texts themselves are not biased against women. How can the church recover sound theology of women? What advice do you have for the church in living out a biblical understanding of women? And the next question is that the complete opposite of it is, how can we dialogue with women colleagues who think of the biblical God as a misogynist?
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. I think it was a difficult chapter to write, partly because there is a problem within the church. It's not just a problem for other religions. It's not just an Islamic problem, although it is an Islamic problem, a huge Islamic problem. And I've had a lot of clout when I've been going around so safeguarding conferences recently, a lot of secular conferences. There'll be Muslim men there, often pediatricians, who've taken exception to me quoting from their sheikhs and so on. But the stuff is there. So it is an Islamic problem, but it's also a problem in the church. And therefore, we have to face this and admit it and do something about it and we can do something about it by not always believing the guy um, by making sure we got pro- proper pastoral um, arrangements for people who are struggling with their marriages or their family relationships and that we've got trained pastoral groups for people who are coping with uh, remembrance of incest or all of those things And we've got to do that and unless we're doing that really in our churches then we ha- well, i don't think we have a right to speak to the uh, populations as a whole about these issues and and so uh, whenever i go to a church or whenever i go to a conference i ask i ask people what what area of violence has god laid on their hearts because there will be something and very often in in england now it's increasingly female genital mutilation and it's wanting to work with the muslim populations in their cities so that they can actually be facing this together but sometimes it's child brides, and sometimes it's honor killings and then sometimes it's it's intimate partner violence so what what is God laying on the heart of the church Uh, and how can you then do something about it practically but the unless the theology is there undergirding it we we can't you know we can't do a, a good job but there's heaps and heaps of good books now about looking at systematic theology, looking at gender, looking at men and women in relationship, looking at the, the story of creation and fall and redemption and making sure that we get our theology in the right section and we're telling the right section. So a lot of people talk about you know the men, man, being dominance, that he will rule over you as being God's intention for male and female, forgetting that's in the sin section of our story, not in the creation section. And it's when everything goes wrong, God says your desire is going to be for your husband. And there's a lot of uh, theological argument about what desire means. Is it desire for mastery or desire for intimacy? And it's probably the latter, but the, he'll rule over you, he'll dominate you. And so it's already pre- predicted in the scriptures, but it's not God's intention. And when we actually lose that harmony and that mutuality that's there in the creation story. And similarly, I mean, <laughs> I took, um, yeah, I, I take people through the sin passages, through the book of Judges, there's heaps of stuff there, through the concubine, the rape of the concubine, and point out that this isn't um, God's intention. Uh, this, again, is part of the sin story. And then when we go into St. Paul, it's very interesting in marriage. I did with a whole bunch of very, very conservative theological seminarians. And we looked at 1 Corinthians 7, and where it talks about, I mean, where Paul is saying to men, to women, when you're married, you no longer have ownership of your own body. That ownership passes to your husband. And how, you know, the men would think, well, of course it does. You know, we've always known that we own the woman's sexuality. And then likewise, you men, (laughs) you no longer have authority over your body either. That authority passes to your wife. I mean, that is probably the most mutual and the most radical passage in any ancient literature. I mean, I've looked at lots of ancient literature. You don't find anything like that on gender. So I was doing it to this very conservative seminarian young men and saying, so what does that sound like to you? I said to them. And this guy said, Do you know it sounds almost equal? So I said, Where do you get the almost from? <laughs> he couldn't couldn't bring himself to say it sounds mutual and reciprocal. Almost equal, but it is equal. So concentrating on those passages that, and that's the only place that Paul actually uses the word authority. He doesn't use authority in Ephesians. He uses this, this metaphor of head, carefully, which is a very different sense of it. So uh, we get, we've got to really make sure that we're preaching the gospel properly and that we've got the right theology agenda and that we're not actually being patriarchal, that we're not reproducing uh, the Jewish system and so on. And when we do that, then we've got to find out how we implement it and how we pick up the people who are falling by the wayside or who are victims of violence. I
1: want to ask my question, because Anne has paraphrased my question, so we're going to conclude with hers. I have, uh, Anne says, I have noticed in your presentation that you seem like a joyful person, What allows you to hold all of these extremely painful truths about the world and humanity, while also retaining your hope and joy. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, I I do have a tremendous amount of hope and joy, because I know uh, that this the world is not doomed, and I know that once we recognise something as sin, and come back to God, um, that actually things can change, and and I've seen in my own life and uh, in the lives of women that I love, whole areas of redemptive living and redemptive change that at one stage you never thought possible. And I think also as a a president of Tier Fund traveling around when I did, I saw so many acts of complete unselfishness from people, uh, men and women giving out of themselves, not counting the cost and not fighting the, just actually giving themselves out, that I know that we're capable of that as the human race. I know that we're capable of it. And I also know that deep down, people are longing for justice in the world. Uh, They're longing for, the world to be a better place and they want to know how they they can make the world a better place and i think to tap into these areas of people's longing rather than the selfishness and the self-centeredness and so on is is really important and then god leads us to do that and my, I am I am joyful. I mean, I've got a very happy marriage, got lovely kids, uh, lovely grandchildren who gladden my heart all the time and who are very supportive. And they, I think they think they're nannies in that case, but <laughs> they turn up and listen to me and laugh and all the rest of it. We have a few private jokes when I go and preach at their churches. <laughs> so, yeah, there is a lot to be joyful about because at the end of the day, um, Jesus is risen. You know, he died for our sins, our sins are washed away. Uh, We are right with the Father, we will get things wrong. Every day of our lives we will get things wrong. But that, in a real deep sense, no longer matters because we can go back and receive his forgiveness and receive his blessing. Um, And really the the most important thing for me every day really is to know, can I face God at the end of the day? Can I hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Or, well, you could have done better. And that's my hope for the day, really. I want to be able to serve God as best I can. And God is a great God to serve. And that everyone in the universe is serving something or somebody. You know, we're made to serve. It's part of our DNA. It's part of the structure of our humanity. We are in servanthood. And we're in servanthood to Almighty God because we're creatures of the living God. And if we're not in service to God, then we're idol worshipping in creatures to something else. And so breaking the power of idolatry, um, I think we do that with joy and we do that with love and we do that with something that connects us up, up with God and makes other people more comfortable to be with us. And I, I do find that where Christians, are people who get comfortable to be with rather than frightening to be with. <laughs> i met lots of Christians like that, terrifying to be with. (laughs) Then in a sense, you feel something of the joy of of the Lord and the the great bliss of being included in the Fellowship of the Saints. And uh, that keeps me going.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much, Elaine. Uh, It's absolutely fascinating to hear everything that you had to say. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, thank you for giving time when you... Each, like I've been uh, corresponding with Elaine for a while. And like sometimes she's been in Turkey. Sometimes she's been in the U.S. Like, <laughs> And so she's been doing a lot of things, busy with family and all kinds of other commitments. And we really appreciate you. I don't know whether it's your dinner time, but that you kind of gave up your dinner time <laughs> with us. Uh, so yeah. appreciate it very much. Um, I'd like us to pray for Elaine before she leaves. All and you all go back to the rest of our day, dear Father. Thank you for uh, the time that all of us got to spend with Elaine, and uh, for all that you have made her to be. For all, uh, all of the all of her learning um, in so many different areas. Thank you for her expertise, and thank you that uh, for all of the th- uh, things that she's thought about faith and gender, um, that has made it easier for us to kind of walk in her footsteps after, because uh, she's already led the way in helping us to figure out certain things. Uh, Thank you for all her many uh, uh, public uh, engagements in thinking through so many aspects of life from a point of view of faith and her impact and contribution to British media, to theology, to the church in England, to development and uh, combating violence against women around the world. So many things. We thank you for her, and we thank you for the joy that she has and the blessing that she has in her family. We pray that you will... uh, Continue to keep her joyful, fruitful, faithful, uh, and uh, bless the work of her hands and help in the days ahead, in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: Amen. Well, thank you so much. I do appreciate that. It's been a privilege and a joy. But I also want to um, write large that there is tremendous amount of pain out there. And my own experience is that of a lot of women, some of the most courageous and outstanding Christian leaders are also women who have gone through this um, and have, f- have sorted violence out in their own lives and have actually become the victors through it. And so much of my own joy really is related to them. They have allowed me um, this, the privilege of learning from them and growing with them. And, uh, and it's tremendous to be um, witnessing that too. So women are not just victims, they're also leaders. Um, And even women who have been damaged and harmed and hurt are outstanding leaders in our world today. God bless them.
0: Thank you for listening in on our Spring Book Club's interview with Elaine Storkey, author of Scars Across Humanity. If you would like more resources on help for victims of sexual assault or violence against women, we recommend visiting Rain the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network at www.rainn.org. And if you would like more information on Elaine Storkey's work, you can find her at Elaine Storky, and that's spelled S-T-O-R-K-E-Y.com. And finally, if you are interested in being part of future book clubs hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, look for more information this fall at thewell.intervarsity.org, or contact Jasmine at wap at That's w-a-p at intervarsity.org. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at theWell.intravarsity.org.